You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimczynski and I, Niels Kasselblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry likes to put it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Jerry, in fact, where he discussed how he selects the single stocks he trades in his trend-following portfolio, and where we also talked about why investors tend to gravitate towards lower return strategies with a lot more hidden risk compared to what we do. So if you missed that one, I invite you to go back and listen to it. And uh, as Jerry does, actually, he re-listens a few times to get all the nuances uh, of the discussion. Anyways, Mark, fantastic to see you. Great to be back with you this week. Happy Thanksgiving. How are things going in the U.S.? Good, good. We uh, obviously had our big Thanksgiving dinner yesterday. So so Friday is always sort of a, a down day, and it's not because of the markets. You just feel a little lethargic. You, you had a house full of people. And so, so this is, it's always sort of, let's say it's, it's, it's an, it's a weird day because it's a work day, but at the same time, you don't feel like working. So it's a good time for, for chatting. It's a good time for chat. It's always a good time for chatting, right? So, uh, yeah, no, I can completely relate to that before I, uh, dive into my brief market wrap as, as always, I just want to, uh, remind you listening today that we would be ever so grateful if you would, uh, Take this link called toptradersonplug.com forward slash share and share that with three of your friends so that we can continue to grow the audience here at this podcast. Now, of course, Fed Chairman Powell's re-nomination, you would think that would be the headline for this week. But while the U.S. is celebrating Thanksgiving, news of a South African, African variant of COVID-19 is really putting some pressures on the markets today in the headlines that I've seen so far today. And that actually reminds me to say that we're recording Friday afternoon. Just so you know, um, if if we leave some news out that comes later on today, we, we are recording early this week as well. But anyways, the headlines I've seen so far today is, of course, um, you know, might be old news when it gets to you. But the headlines of this new variant, that it's more contagious than Delta variant and that the vaccines that we've been given may not be so effective against this strain. That is, of course, what's causing these tumultuous times in the markets today. But, you know, it's early days and the headlines will change in the next few days. And now, of course, there is a big sell-off in the markets and it could also be somewhat, um, you know, down to the lack of liquidity uh, we see when there is a U.S. holiday like we see today. What will be interesting, of course, is to see if we have investors coming in maybe on Monday to buy the dip, which they have done for so many years now, and that's worked out. Of course, if you're already long Moderna, Pfizer, and Zoom, this may not be a bad day in the office, as far as I can tell. But we're going to leave the speculation aside. I wanted to bring you in, uh, Mark, just to hear 
what has been catching your attention uh, and sort of big picture stuff in the last uh, few weeks since we last spoke? Well, I think the issue is always that the, the main topic areas stay the same. It's the nuances that uh, that matter. So, for example, Fed policy and central bank policy is always going to be critical. Now we have tapering going on. So, so we have to look through what are the effects. Uh, you look at October was the great repricing of Fed action for 2022. And now we have the further fallout for that. So, so everyone talks about the Fed. It's just that there's a higher intensity and lower intensity. And I think that now with the COVID, we're getting a higher intensity back for the, uh, for the, uh, for the virus where it may have been lower intensity about a month ago. So, so the topics cha- uh, change the, uh, or the topics stay the same. The intensity differs. Yeah, and no, I think that's a great description, actually. I think if you think back on the topics for the last, you know, probably few years by now, except for COVID, that obviously didn't start until last year. But it's there's a lot of things that are just going round and round in circles, and we tend to just view things slightly differently from time to time. But anyways... Due to uh, just for a little bit an update on performance uh, on my side, um, you know, due to Thanksgiving, it has been a really quiet week so far. And performance um, as of Thursday night was completely flat in our trend following um, portfolio. But of course, today is not going to be a pretty day because a lot of the trends, as far as I can tell, are reversing. Um, So but, you know, hey, that's only one day and that's just how it is. My trend barometer has been a little bit weak for a while now. It's still, uh, it finishes yesterday at 36. That's below the average. So it's still pointing to a weaker environment. Maybe it's a little bit ahead of its time. So we'll see how um, how it all plays out into the end of November. In terms of volatility, kind of same thing. I mean, it's been a pretty subdued environment for volatility strategies uh, that we've seen all of 2021, really. And it continues in November. And our strategy is down about a percent so far, uh, so not much to report there. But I do want to take the opportunity to mention that this week we published the fifth episode of the Volatility Series. So if you are interested in the space, and and I think most people should be, um, if nothing else, to learn more about uh, that because it plays a role even in trend following, I would certainly encourage you to go and listen to these episodes and also just to let you know there are more of these episodes coming maybe with slightly different characters but but um yeah I hope that you'll make the most of these of this content as well for my trend following portfolio where I can go into a little bit more detail of course uh, it has been a negative week it is down about uh, 2% uh, for the month and it's uh, up about 6% for the year so far. So certainly giving back a lot of the early profits so f- in, in the year. In terms of the uh, group uh, models, um, again, before today, uh, it, this will change for sure today. But the classical trend models were up to just shy of 1%. The group 2 models, so these are the ones with the long bias in, in, in the way they trade, they were down 3.37%, and then the fast-reacting models um, were up a little bit, about 36 basis points. Now, in terms of sectors so far uh, this month, the best ones were equities, softs, and currencies. That's probably also going to change after today. And the worst sectors uh, so far were energies, energies, precious metals, and bonds. That may not change, actually, for today. And if we drill down to the markets, uh, the euro actually... um, 
you know, the euro uh, as a currency has uh, done pretty well this year, this month. Uh, so has the Nasdaq and the DAX, obviously, again, prior to uh, this uh, Friday. Um, Black Friday is perhaps not a, such a bad, uh, maybe it should have been Red Friday today. Who knows? And then at the bottom of this uh, month so far, we have crude oil, US 10-year notes and heating oil. In terms of uh, current exposure, um, again, the portfolio is generally long, a lot of stuff, equities, copper, gold, bunds, although the bunds is offset by a short US 10-year uh, note position. And then also uh, some of the grains uh, are still long. And then um, the shorts uh, really around, so the euro um, and the yen uh, right now. And in terms of the risk to stop, it would uh, the portfolio would lose about 6.99% uh, if we got stopped out of everything, um, which is down from about 7.91% last week. So again, stops just, oh, actually it's positions that are fewer and therefore the risk to stop also comes down. All right, so we Mark brought along a lot of interesting topics, maybe a little bit different topics than we normally uh, talk about, which is something we always do when Mark, Mark is on the show. There's always a little bit of a difference. Uh, so uh, so I think you're going to enjoy this a lot. But before we go there, I had an email in today, a question from Glenn. Um, Glenn uh, used to work as a firefighter and a medic. And he's uh, new to trend following as such, but he does like it and he wants to implement some of these uh, techniques. So he sent a question in about um, a system that he has been working on uh, as a general rule and just wanted sort of a little bit of feedback. Now, it may be a little bit difficult to do it full justice because we've only been given a little bit uh, of, of the rules. But anyways, Mark, let's give it a go and see if we can help our firefighter slash medic friend, Glenn. So he writes, as an aside, because of my interest in your trend following topics, I put some ETFs and ETCs and a few stocks together as markets to trade with my own trend following system. It's a work in progress, but, and then he shows me a chart below. And what the chart shows is a Dungeon channel where the 21 day high line signals an entry to the long side. And then he says ATR at the entry price, which doubled gives me a stop loss and dictates my bet size. So I think he means a two ATR stop loss and that dictates the bet size. And then he uses a 50 day low line so that when the price goes up and the low line passes the stop, that then becomes my exit signal. So the ATR stop is only as the initial stop and then the longer term stop will become uh, the 50 day low. Okay, so Mark, obviously this is going to be broad stuff picture but but what are your sort of thoughts and how may we be able to help glenn a little bit here well i, I think let's go back to the basics of what kind of model is he really trying to build and and so if you're if you're looking at these extremes uh you know, both on your stop losses and entry level is this is it uh you're you're falling to one class of models versus another and i always sort of said said is this is that uh you know, moving average models are are sort of very linear systems. Uh, uh, you're either in or out, and a channel system or system of breakout systems where you have to wait until prices get above a certain level before you enter is is more of a nonlinear system. So what you're doing is is that you're looking for some acceleration. You're looking for behavior that uh, that 
is, is starts to change rapidly. And so, so by the nature, you're going to have, uh, you know, may, may, you may get fewer signals because you have to wait for this acceleration. And then you're also going to have a problem is, is that sometimes they don't extend. So you're going to have an issue of issues associated with that. You might get, you know, false positive signals. So you have to now be comfortable with the type of system that you're building, that you're going to have to do a lot of analysis. You may have to wait for signals to actually appear. So that means you might have to proverbially sit on your hands and, and just wait and just run your system and not get too anxious. And second is, is that you have to accept that you know, you're probability of success may not be as high as what you would expect is is it that that there there will be a, a fair number of false positives yeah one so obviously we don't know exactly how much risk um, or we don't know at all how much risk that glenn is using per trade but one thing that kind of t- caught my attention is just that he's using a relatively short look back period 21 day high for me that's a short look back period but then he uses a 50-day low as the as the exit. Now that may work well. I mean, and maybe and maybe Glenn has has tested this. But usually, I tend to see that people are using a larger number in terms of look back for the entry. So like a hundred-day high combined with a 50-day low as your entry. So I I, I noticed a slight sort of re- reverse sizing, if I can call it that, of the parameters here. Again, it may work well, but uh, that's one thing. The other thing that caught my attention here, Glenn, is that when you do use a relatively short-term entry level uh, look-back period, I mean, you could get a hell of a lot of false signals because a lot of markets are are, are prone to trading ranges, and and I worry a little bit that you might get stopped in and out um, a few times. But again, pure speculation. Don't have never tested this combination myself. So these are things that I caught. There, there are always trade-offs. And when you think about it, this is that when you shorten up your window, and you have, a, uh, let's say, only look at it 21 days. This is that in some sense, what you're saying is, is that I want more trades. I don't want right. to sit on the sidelines as often. I want to get more signals. And you can say like, uh, and it will be successful at generating more signals. The problem comes in is, is that you're also going to get more false signals. If, on the other hand, you sort of lengthen up your program or your look-back period, you're going to get fewer signals, okay? But then the likelihood that you're going to get a false uh, positive is less. So, uh, and you're also going to get a little bit frustrated because you might see what, uh, on, a, on a trend system, you might sort of say, oh, look, look, the trend looks really great. I should be in, I should be in. But your model, because it's it's has a longer look-back, is it may delay your actual entry. So there is a psychological component of what you're building. And there's also constantly a trade-off. And so you have to ask, well, do I want to be active or less active? Can I live with the period of inactivity? And what's my tolerance for false positives? Yeah, no, very important points, actually. My final point to you, Glenn, uh, would just be try a few different combinations, just see what they're like. And maybe if you want to use a 50-day low, which is probably perfectly fine, actually, 
then try and, and go a little bit uh, further out in terms of the look back period for the entry. So you don't, so you become kind of a longer term investor, I think. The only other thing I would also say is that I do think that there's always a bit of a danger if you concentrate your trend following to one kind of sector because it's going to be highly correlated. And so um, you're not really going to get the full benefit of trend following. It's better than not, probably not doing trend following in your stocks. But but the the secret source partly of a trend following system is the fact that we have so many uncorrelated uh, markets in uh, in our portfolio. So be aware of that. Um, okay, and and that is a critical point I think you make because there is. I was looking at a. And I had a request to do some uh, some analysis on on some ETFs, and we were looking at okay, what happens if I add in you know sector ETFs and country ETFs? And you find out is this is that you know okay, I want to increase the diversification, I want to increase the number of choice sets, but I wasn't getting a lot of uh, change in the performance of the portfolio as I added in these new assets. And the reason why is is that uh, while there's some uniqueness with sectors, there's also a high correlation so that that oftentimes you get a lot of the signals across sectors all coming at the same time for this particular model that I was looking at. And so so it's really important if you're trading ETFs uh, that you include things that you know by definition will not be correlated. Yeah. And actually, I would also say, Glenn, go back and listen to my conversation with Jerry from, from last week, because that's actually one of the things we touched on, that within his single stock universe, he makes a great um, effort, actually, to make sure that uh, they are somewhat different, uh, even though they're all equities, but they are somewhat different, like, you know, Beyond Meat and Tesla and Moderna and stuff like that. They're definitely different uh, drivers for those uh, markets. All right, now we're going to get into some really interesting stuff that you brought along, uh, Mark. As as always, I'm just going to try and 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 catch on to your uh, thoughts and and try and and with a, come with a few uh, sensible uh, inputs here. But uh, I'm going to let you drive this a bit. And as I said, these are slightly different topics, um, but they are very relevant for the overall conversation, uh, both for investors but also for for trend followers. So the first thing you uh, wanted to bring up is just central bank issues. Um, you didn't give me much more than that. So let me uh, let me pass it over to you and and see where we're going to go with this. Well, uh, I think that as we talked about it at the beginning of, of the podcast, we talked that the, the topics stay the same. It's the intensity that changes. But let's be more precise when we talk about intensity. We'll say that the level of uncertainty associated with that topic changes uh and there's a great quote by uh by by keynes in the uh in his uh, in his general theory he talks about the extreme precarious precariousness of the basis of knowledge and so so that because our knowledge is very precarious there's a lot of uncertainty that it, our estimates of prospective yield uh are very difficult to make so forecasting is hard and you know, I've probably spent a lot of time sort of trying to sort of analyze or trying to deal with the uncertainty issue through through the years. And, and I think trend following is an attempt to fight against the lack of knowledge and uncertainty. 
And when you think about it, and we'll, we'll tie this back to, to you know, Fed and monetary policy in a second, is that in a simple world of uncertainty, there's a single path. You say, well, yeah, we know exactly where the world is going, or uh, but there may be some, un, you know, sort of bounds around that there's... Uh, Another level or a second level of uncertainty is is that well we know that there could be a good path or a, a bad path that there's two paths you know so there, there's there's a juncture in where we can go with policy and choices and then you get into higher levels of uncertainty there could be three or four levels or or there we can't even determine what are the different scenarios or paths that we have and if you look at right now is this is that we have a very complex period. Because we've got tapering going on, okay, which which has start, started. Fundamentally, is this is that we know that the one of the objectives of quantitative easing was is, is that it would be able to lower interest rates and obviously drive up, you know, uh, you know, bond prices. You get a wealth effect. Well, if we're starting to reverse that through tapering, albeit tapering is not the same as reducing the balance sheet. We're going to have to see prices, uh, or we should expect to see bond prices go up. So that's going to put a lot of pressure on the market as one of the key players is no longer present. And I think that uh, markets are probably aware of it in the fixed income side. Equity markets may not be. I, I'm just going to interrupt you here because I, I wasn't sure whether you really meant that. Did you mean that bond prices are going to go up or bond yields are going to go up? So I said bond yields are going to go up. Right. Yes. Okay. So Good. I was going to say that the prices uh, were going up in quantitative easing. Right. Now that we're going to quantitative tapering, we're going to have the opposite effect. Right. So this is, uh, uh, and I think that we really don't know what the impact would be. And I probably would sort of say that especially equity markets don't seem to be thinking a lot through what the impact of, of tapering would be. Second of all, this is that you could sort of see is, is that uh, we've had a massive change relative to the summer on what we expect will happen with the Fed in terms of actually raising interest rates. Now we're sort of anticipating, if you look at the euro dollar futures or Fed fund futures, two to three increases in 2022, the first one coming at least by mid-year. So this has been a radical change in how we think about Fed policy. We're seeing that the periphery central banks are already raising rates, especially in, let's say, Eastern Europe and some of the emerging markets. Exception is the wild card is always Turkey. We have other central banks, uh, as a Bank of England as might raise rates. We have reducing of the balance sheet of uh, Bank of Canada. So we're, so we're in a significant inflection point, and that creates uncertainty and also creates opportunity. A perfect example is this: is that when you look at the Treasury complex, this is that uh, you know a lot of people who are trend followers they might trade just a ten years or very liquid market. They've probably skewed trading the two year. And here, here we look at this: is that we've had a lot of price action in the two year Treasury. So there's now a tremendous amount of differences in how you trade along the curve, and where you will see opportunities. And that even applies to uh, back month euro dollars. Is that when you, from a trend followers perspective, a lot of people sort of uh, avoided the front end of the yield curve. 
for the simple reason is, is that if you're all close to zero interest rates, there's no activity to really sort of by which to base a trend on. So therefore, your trading was avoided. It was almost as though that you had to reallocate that capital, or if you kept that capital, you were not getting any signal uh, signals. So we'll say the dynamics of where opportunities are going to come from, the dynamics of what those opportunities would look like, that has changed radically in uh, in the central bank area. And the area that 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 also sort of fits in with this is that it's all going to create more volatility. So first is, is that if you end tapering or, or you end the purchasing by the Fed, well, this large player in the market is no longer going to be a consistent buyer. So that means is that for markets to, that means markets will be driven by the expectations of other players on the margin which means if those players change their views from one direction to another, that will create volatility. And finally, is, is, is that I think this is really going to be having effect a lot of trading, is, is that if, you, if the Fed stops being the large buyer that it is, it's going to have a tremendous impact on liquidity in the treasury markets. If there's less liquidity in, in the treasury markets, then that's going to create more volatility and more noise in any kind of trading. An interesting study that was done where they were looking at the top of the book uh, uh, liquidity across the interest rate and, and bond complex, not only in the U.S., but in Europe. And we'll say, especially in the front end, is, is that liquidity is down over 50%, 80%, 90% for front end treasuries it's down 50%. Liquidity is about the same on the top of the book for 30 years, but in general this is that there's been a significant decline in liquidity across the interest rate markets. And what that means is is that if people start to change their expectations quickly, they will not be able to get the trades that they want done, which means is that prices are going to have to adjust and for the trend followers perspective, that creates noise in your model. Because if let's say that the intraday high and low gets, uh, range gets larger, well, if you use uh, any type of average true range, if you look at uh, measuring volatility by using some other estimate than end of day uh, closing prices, that's going to have an impact on that volatility measure. And if, let's say, it trans, uh, translates from one day to the next, well, then that means is that the trends that you're going to be looking at are going to be harder to understand or to extract from the market because of this higher volatility. So there, there's other effects when we think about the Fed taking activity. There's on the one level, you say like, okay, they're going to be doing less buying. Uh, we're going to sort of see interest rates go higher, but there are also secondary effects or second order effects like liquidity that may affect how our models actually behave. Yeah, no, I think all of those are very uh, important points um, and and well taken. I think one of the things that I think of when I when I think about these, um, I mean, one of the points that sort of stood out for me is this sort of change in expectations that you talked about and i think that 
I think for a lot of investors, um, when they build their model portfolios, and I'm not specifically talking about trend followers, but I'm talking about the, the really big institutional investors, I think there's a lot of expectation as to what central bank policy is going to look like in the future. And I think a lot of that expectation is, well, it's not going to be vastly different from what we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years. And what worries me a little bit is that in history, you actually do see examples of suddenly something massively change in terms of, you know, policy, uh, so to speak. And and you could say, well, what, what, why, why would they suddenly change their their stance on certain things at this point in time? But I think sometimes we forget that we have lived in a relatively peaceful world for a long time now, but we are starting to see sort of the beginnings of let's call it quote unquote civil unrest in even in the in the western countries um we saw some of it last year we're seeing some of it now which is you know somewhat related to what's going on with the covid situation vaccinations and all of that but i think we we forget and and, and underestimate that that sometimes even these authorities like central banks they can be forced to change their opinion or forced to change their policy by things that's happening in society. And I don't, I don't know, I don't have anything specific to base it on, but I feel, and maybe it's going back to kind of um, reading the book, The Fourth Turning, uh, a while back, and, and having talked about it on this podcast, actually, you know, where they talk about these societal uh, cycles and changes and where we are, where it looks like we are in this kind of decade where, really societies will change and and transform and if you go on uh, by the work that they did uh, in terms of their book this is also uh, usually the time where you see some kind of large scale crises taking place at the same time and that might then lead to to these uh, quote unquote u-turns in in policy so basically what i'm trying to say is i worry that the financial system meaning how investors are invested and 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 how the plumbing of the financial system is working is very much relying on that there should be no major surprise uh, from central banks and usually when you put all your chips in one area these changes or these surprises tend to come so that's that's kind of one thing and and you know we've talked about this of course before is that that is kind of where the strength of trend following lies because we don't have any expectations of anything. So if the policy changes and the markets take a completely different direction, well, we will adapt and adjust and 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 we'll, you know, just business as usual, really. Painful maybe for a period of time, but business as usual. We've been through these things many, many times. Right. So that's some of the thoughts that I, I took away from, from what you had mentioned but, there. Well, I, I think that when we sort of say that trend following is non-predictive. I think that we're uh, we're selling short the nuanced view of what is the importance of trend following and what it does and what it doesn't do, okay? Mm -hmm. And a couple of of ways in which we could go down this path, but right now I'm believing trend following is the fight against uh, knowledge and uncertainty, we'll call it, or the lack of knowledge and uncertainty. Right. A perfect example is, is that let's look at the dollar. Dollar is uh, DXY index. The dollar is starting to improve. 
you know, and some people are scratching their heads. What's what's the reason for the strength of the dollar? And we'll sort of say that the dollar, like most other financial markets, is forward looking. Mm-hmm. And the forward look, uh, the forward look is 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 that there's going to be a change in Fed policy vis-a-vis other central banks, such that you know there's going to be a reason for investors to want to hold dollar-denominated assets. So, so it means is that the that rates, in some sense, are going to go up. Now, this is a very forward-looking uh, view of the world. Now, the people who are scratching their heads are the ones who are sometimes the fundamentalists who are looking at uh, the data. They're looking at, uh, but the data that they're looking at in the fundamental side oftentimes is backward looking. So we don't have, if you look at just the balance sheet of central banks, it still suggests that that the Fed is very accommodative. It, if you look at the real rate of interest, it, it, it's very accommodative. So, so those fundamentals are, are backward looking. Now, a trend follower, because it's not using all that fundamental information, what it actually is doing is, is looking at what our prices are telling us today. And if those prices today oftentimes have this forward-looking expectation, it may be better able to extrapolate what is going on than the fundamental modelist. So the fundamental modelist is, is, is still trying to play catch-up to forward expectations. And that's not always the case, but we'll sort of say for a lot of people who are just using backward looking information, they're not be able to sort of account for this forward looking bias right now. And here's a place where, place where the trend follower is actually doing a much better job of fighting uncertainty than maybe the fundamental uh, person. I'll go this a little bit deeper is, is that, that uh, you know that the buzzword that a lot of people are talking about uh, in in, the, in uh, systematic modeling is machine learning, and right. uh, as coming from an, uh, as an economics background, you know we'll sort of say that I, I'll say that I come from a culture of econometrics, or or that's where I was taught. And what you sort of say that there's a fundamental difference in the problem that machine learning is trying to solve versus what an econometrician is trying to solve. The econometrician is saying, is this relationship that I'm trying to measure, is it causal? And given it's causal, can I then use that to make some some judgments or forecasts about the future? The machine learner sort of doesn't ask that question at all. He just asks a simple question, is my model accurate? I have techniques that I think take in a lot of data and it's an attempt to try to say, can I improve accuracy of some prediction? Now, when you look at a trend follower, is he looking for a causal relationship or is he looking to be accurate? And I would say that that, uh, trend followers follow more in the camp of decision science and machine learning right now, because they only ask the question, is my model accurate? Is uh, is my prediction about, or my uh, action that I take associated with trends, is it correct? It doesn't ask the question, is it causal? It just asks, does it do a good job? Yeah. 
And I think that that's, uh, and, and especially if you're sort of trying to deal with a period of uncertainty like we have now, then the trend follower sort of said like, well, how do I deal with uncertainty? I just try to sort of say, is my model more accurate in the sense is that, uh, you know, if I th- say that the, I think that prices are going up and that's the trend, am I actually making money by following that trend? True, true. So, uh, and and this gets into, I think there's also a certain amount of precision in trend following that you don't sort of see, and especially when you read uh, or listen to the talking heads uh, across the media and across, you know, business news. So the trend follower has to be very specific. So, so he doesn't say, well, let me tell you about what I think of Powell. Let me tell you about what I think of Fed policy. All they sort of say is that, well, what is the price doing and what action should I take from that? Now, now you could add sort of your own sort of fluff in terms of talking about it, but but the idea of trying to solve uncertainty by talking through a narrative is not relevant for the trend follower. And this reminds me in, uh, in sort of a, a sort of side work I've looked at and studied there's a person named Sherman Kent. He's a Yale professor in the 1950s, and he joined the CIA, okay? Mm-hmm. And his job at the CIA was to try to sort of uh, uh, improve the forecasts that were being generated from the analysts. And so he worked on what are called words of estimative uh, probabilities and uh we could play a little bit of a game game here uh, because what he wanted to do is he wanted to sort of say, we got to convert the language that you use in your report into probabilities, or at the very least, we have to understand what the probabilities are associated with the words you use. Because if you use different words or have different meaning to those words, you might get a very different action. So if I say something might happen, what do you think the probability of that actually occurring? Yeah, I mean, actually, the the um, w- w- just I, I don't know where where exactly you want to go with this, but it reminds me of something that Annie Duke wrote in Thinking of Bets, and that is when people make these statements, what you really should ask them is, do you want to bet? Do you want you know how right. certain are you about this? Yeah, uh, that that would be the extreme is to say, are you willing okay. to put money on it? So, but, uh, not just your honor. Yeah. So, 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 so for example, so, so, and there have actually been recent studies, the Harvard business school did a, did a study and there's a, a professor, I think at the university of Illinois, who's done repeated this studies of Sherman Kent. So Sher, Sher, Sherman, what he did is, is that he looked at all these words and then he asked people to sort of say, well, tell me what you actually think the probability is. So, so might has a probability. Yes. So the word right. unlikely, uh, they said, like, most people think that that means that there's still a 20% chance of something happening, even if we say unlikely. If I right. say it's likely, it's probably about an 80% chance of happening. Now, the interesting part, if it's if someone says, well, I think, I think the Fed, this might happen with the Fed. Well, the median would probably be 50%, but the range is between zero and 50. So when someone says something might happen, they might only give that a 10% chance. And if someone says, well, I think this is a real possibility, they only think that it's probably likely to happen two thirds of the time. Now, 
where are we going with this is, is that when you think about trend following this, is, is that by saying that there's a sort of digital answer, it's yes or no, you know, I'm willing to bet if because the uh, because I look at this trend and I think that the price is going higher, you sort of avoid this imprecision of language and the imprecision of knowledge. You're trying, you're actually sort of converting, uh, you know, sort of the what you're seeing in the markets to an actual bet, as opposed to using you know, sort of the fluffy language to describe something. And when you use that, that sort of fluffy language, what you're doing is it gives you an ability to not really be precise, give you a little wiggle room on what you actually mean. And it actually hurts your analysis in the long run. Yeah. No, absolutely. So you got to call me out if I sort of said, yeah. eh, I think that might happen. Well, so, well, what exactly does that mean in terms of probability? Our conversations going forward, Mark, is going to be completely different. <laughs> it could, be, so, could actually uh, be more fun, I'm sure, for the listener. But but think of this as that, uh, uh, and it would be interesting to ask some of our other podcasters, you know, is when you sort of use the word likely, or might happen, you know, what, you know, how they would answer what, what's the probability of that occurring? Or if someone said, I think that, you know, the Fed might raise rates by June of next year, what their response would be in terms of what's the probability of that actually happening if someone told you that? Well, of course, you know, in secret between you and me, Mark, and I'm sure the other ones won't pick, 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 pick this up uh, in this conversation. You can, of course, prepare a few of these tests when we do our big group conversation in a couple of weeks, uh, which I announced last week, and it's now final. So we will be doing a, a, a recording, um, probably lasting a couple of episodes in length, where we're going to all get together and we're going to battle out and hash out a lot of uh, our differences in terms of uh, trend following. But of course, we also want the audience and our listeners to join by uh, asking questions. So uh, by all means, already, please do start uh, sending your questions in, and I'll do my best to uh, to make sure that uh, we get some of those uh, included in, in all the topics. But I think that could be quite fun if we can uh, do that now. Of course, I'm sure they will be prepared, having listened to us today, Mark. There are some other things you uh, you brought up, and I just want to make sure we, we give it a little bit of time uh, if you want to. You talked about equity markets. You talked about COVID trends. You talked about inflation. I think inflation could be interesting to hash out a little bit more in detail. Uh, what are the things you're thinking of when it comes to uh, these points um, and these issues at the moment? Well, let's talk a little bit about inflation because I think that mm -hmm. there's a a tremendous amount of misinformation about inflation. I think that you'll have in the United States, for example, that they've been saying, well, turkey prices are really high. And so, see, that's inflation, <laughs> where they'll say to say that the gasoline prices are high. It must be that oil, uh, oil companies are gouging consumers. So what they'll do is that they'll take a single price and they'll extrapolate that into, <coughs> into what is inflation. And that's not inflation. That's a relative pr price change. And what we found is is, is that uh, uh, that when you have higher inflation, one of the big problems it creates noise, and the noise is that it makes businesses 
are it's harder for them to make effective decisions mm-hmm. because you know they say well should i raise my prices or not i see other people raising my prices but is that because they have higher demand or because there's inflation the fed is uh you know how do i change my expectations and this is creates a sort of a noise effect and makes business decisions more difficult which creates actually dislocations which are often what we actually uh, exploit in the marketplace and in trends. Now, a thing that you really look at this is, is that if you look at the relationship between uh, you know, inflation and bonds right now, it's not very strong at all. If you said, I said, I'm going to look at the trend in inflation and then sort of extrapolate what should happen in bond prices, well, <laughs> You'd be losing money if you looked at that cross-asset relationship. On the other hand, this is that if you look at commodity prices, this is that the inflation is probably, uh, to some degree, not really representing the beta of, of commodity prices is much higher than one. And what you find out is, is that anticipated inflation is not the real killer. It's the unanticipated inflation. It's the deviation from trend that really sort of drives markets. But oftentimes, again, from the inflation stories is that people say, well, because earnings are uh, can be adjusted, this is that, you know, equities could actually do better in an inflationary environment than, than, than bonds, which are nominal prices. That's true. But if you look at the uh, decile equity prices over different inflation periods is that the high inflation environments is not really good for equities. It's not something that you you should be welcoming at all. It is going to have an effect. And even on the commodity side, this is that uh, you you say like, well, inflation is higher. So therefore commodities are going higher. Well, you know, I looked at the uh, FAO information and, uh, on real prices, what you find out is that real commodity prices are at some of the highest levels you know we've seen since they recorded this. So, so we're at you know uh, multi-decade highs on real prices, and from a when you say cultural dislocation, it's not so much that inflation is higher, but if food prices is higher on a real basis for emerging markets. And a lot, a larger portion of their income budget is associated with food. This actually has a real big impact on on, on social and cultural dislocations. Yeah, I mean, agree. Very, I mean, very interesting. And actually, the topic of inflation is interesting. And I think the point you made is actually quite quite relevant. I think because of the increased level of, of prices and therefore quote unquote inflation. I think a lot of people are now starting just to look back in history and say, oh, are we in the 70s or are we in the 40s and and what's going on there? And you brought up a really interesting point because I think a lot of people will naturally gravitate towards the 70s first because it's closer in our mind. Some of us actually, you know, lived through it, so to speak. And, And there, there was... Generally, you could say that interest rates and inflation were much higher, much higher correlated during that period of time. They hiked interest rates as inflation was was increasing to fight it. 
But the 40s were very different. In the 40s, there were a complete disconnect between inflation and rates because you had a period of financial repression. Right. So the, those two are very, you know, very interesting because I think it, it goes to show the uncertainty that we actually don't know exactly what the 2020s are going to look like. We might, we might be lucky in a forecast saying, well, we're probably going to have some inflation during this these 10 years, but we actually don't know, as you pointed out, we don't know exactly what that's going to do to interest rates or to any of the markets for that matter. Uh, so coming back to kind of trend following where we where we don't need to know what's going to happen, again, I, we, obviously we as trend followers, we think that's a, such a powerful ally to have on your have on your team. But I think this is going to be a debate. And I, And again, going back to my point, Previously, I think that a lot of these big, big portfolios, whether they be pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, or whatever, you know, wealth managers of of, of different uh, you know sorts. Unfortunately, I feel that there is a lot of money being at the moment invested in a very similar way, kind of relying on the status quo. And I worry that we may not get the status quo, and this will you know, give, give, give some real trends, quote unquote, in, in the markets, maybe not uh, to, to the upside in, in some of these uh, financial markets, bonds and equities. And, and that's going to be uh, very interesting. Well, I, I think that we're getting to a period also of more introspection by central banks and by investors in general. So there's an interesting paper that was written by one Fed economist, Jeremy uh, Rudd, and Basically, his conclusion was this is that what is the link between inflation, inflationary expectations, and money? And at the end, of the day, he basically came to the conclusion to say, we really don't know. That the links that we think that we build models on often don't exist. Uh, and this doesn't, you know, I'm, I don't want to denigrate all the economic research, but in a changing world, this is that we could sometimes, and, and the process of investigating and in process of being scientists, we find out is that some of the relationships that we thought may exist may not. And we'll sort of say that the investor doesn't always have the luxury of being a scientist to say like, well, I'm going to look at this uh, as a hypothesis and I'm going to test it. And then I'm going to come to the conclusion that I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. The, investor has to live in a world where he has to try to make money or protect his portfolio. So he has to use other methods to try to improve his accuracy, not to try to understand causal relationships. Getting back to what we said is the difference between the machine learner, data science person, and the econometrician. But, you know, I would sort of say that here's a perfect example is this is that we're getting higher inflation but, you know, from the Fed's perspective, they're really not admitting that this is caused by increases in the money supply, because what we've seen is that the money multiplier has fallen out of bed. It's, it's the money multiplier has declined significantly. So they're saying is that, well, we probably thought that at this kind of increase in money that we'd have higher inflation. We didn't. Now we're having higher inflation and now we're uh, so. What is the relationship that we should expect between inflation, money, interest rates? We really don't know. 
And I think that this is, the, again, the, uh, the initial part when we started the podcast, the precariousness of our basis of knowledge, as Keynes would sort of say, is we're highly precarious in our knowledge. And so therefore, is, is, is that it's not that, that trend following is the be-all, end-all, but in a highly uncertain world, it is a process that works and can protect you against this uh, our lack of knowledge or the uncertainty that we face. That here's a way, here's some rules that we could follow to offset the precariousness that we face. Yeah, and and actually, what it comes down to, which is, I think, to keep it really simple, uh, when you think about portfolio construction is to how can you put together a portfolio where you on one hand can participate with as as much how should i put it sp- not speed is not the right word but you know where you can have as much upside as possible participate in all of that but then at the same time you need the protection so participate and protect is really what it comes down to and 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 there are only very few strategies that can deliver that protect and at the same time allow you to participate. So it's uh, very interesting. Another thing that's just quite interesting that I I uh, notice is that when we talk about expectations, we talk about sort of new environments. When you look at the, and this is obviously based on U.S. data, uh, or not obviously, but it is based on U.S. data. If you look at the real yield, so the nominal yield less inflation, we are now already down in the negative uh, levels at the same level as we had in 1973, 74, when we had the oil crisis. And so uh, now the 40s went much further down. At certain points, you had neg- you know negative 15% real yields uh, because of massive inflation and, and financial repression at the same time. So, so it'll be very interesting to see how and, and 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 this is the other thing we talk a lot about sample size in our conversations often and how important it is when you talk about sample size for these kind of extreme moves we don't have a lot of sample size we have a few a handful maybe at best but that's stretching it down to you know back to you know late 1800 something um so so again very interesting stuff going on in in these um in these markets and with this inflation roaring his head now well the sample size problem is is that there obviously the behavioral bias of small sam, uh, sample sizes is that what we do is we find one or two historic events and then we extrapolate that or even like people say well this is how prices behave during you know the upswing in the business cycle they just say well, wait a minute how many business cycles do I actually look at to try to get this? It may be in the United States only a limited number, and they don't really extrapolate it to other countries. So, so the whole idea of sort of saying is that, well, this is how markets will behave, you know, uh, in the upswing in the business cycle. I th- I think that you can say I have some data, I have some theory that says that this is how it should behave, and the data seems consistent with uh, my theories. But the actual size of the impact is it's it's hard to extrapolate that. And if you had to put you know bounds or sort of uh, ranges around it, it's it's a it's a pretty tough world. So so yeah. so I think that that's that's not something that you got to be. Uh, uh, it's not something that uh, that it's not something that you can put a lot of stock in. Right. No. Absolutely. 
Now, the last few points you wanted to bring up, which um, we certainly can just sort of pick those that you you feel um, are, are most uh, relevant. You talked about overriding models. You talked about stop loss and the uh, it's sort of as last resort strategy. You talked about drawdown minimization. Um, you even went on to talk about um, tracking all the new models um, and then some behavioral biases. Where where do you what what would you like to dive into here? Well, this this actually came out from a conversation I had with a uh, uh, a manager. Uh, so we were doing a review, and we had uh, this, and so uh, has some great models, smart guys, good researchers. Uh, you know, uh, I think that they've good pedigrees in terms of what they have. And I'm looking at their track records and like, well, what what went on here? I said, you know, and uh, and uh, with this one period in their uh, track record, it was uh, right around March 2020. Right. And I said like, oh yeah, this is that we overrid the model. You know, so he said it because right. we had such unique situations, we turned off a portion of the, of, of the model, you know, for the uh, equity markets. So... And, uh, and then I said, like, uh, I said, okay, I got to ask the other question. What happens if you didn't turn off the model? What would you have? And he said, like, oh, well, instead of having a negative period, we would have had a positive. <laughs> so, so he said, like, oh, my God. He said, he said, well, we can't really do that because, you know, like our, uh, from a compliance perspective and say this is what we would have had if we followed the model. Right. And then I said, okay, well, well, okay, once you turned off this portion, so because you said that March of 2020 was in the middle of the month was so unusual, I said, when did you turn it uh, back on? He said, well, we were waiting. We didn't know what the per- perfect time was. And then I sort of say like, he said, but <laughs> we're never going to do this again. So, and and this is, a, I think, a much longer discussion. And their thought process was actually seems very rational. It makes a lot of sense. We had such unique uh, events occurring with COVID that we felt this is that that there's that you know the signals we were getting in price did not make any sense. The signal that no one understood what was going in the market. So the best thing we could do is just sort of say we're gonna we're gonna turn the model off. And you know, in, in some sense, if they followed the model, they would have been in much better uh, shape. And then once they did the turn off, they probably didn't really sort of sit down and talk about it, like, well, what are the conditions where we're going to reverse this decision and put the uh, put the trades back on? Because, well, all of a sudden, when you look at the market, is equity markets fell out of bed, and then they started coming back really quickly in, in the end of March and early April. You know, the stock indices. You say like, oh, look. We got COVID, we're going to have millions dying, and now the stock market is going actually up. This doesn't make sense. We better wait. And and, and so they waited, and they waited, and so so it got worse and worse. And so there's a whole issue of, uh, uh, we started having a further discussion to start saying, is that, well, they've made some changes to the model. And I said, well, do you track the old model? Mm-hmm. So can you say, what is the old relative to the new and can you say that your enhancements actually added value, or how do would you measure that you add value with your quote unquote new or your additions relative to what you had in the past? Now, on one hand, is this is that this is a uh, this is a very difficult game because okay, you add a new model, and there could be very good reasons for it, but 
you know, the path that occurred in the actual market prices may have been more favorable to your old model. Does that mean that the new model is wrong? It's hard to say. And and some people say, well, once I throw out my old model, I don't want to go back and look over that because then I get into the second guessing issue. So so here you have the whole uh, one of the key problems with being a systematic in, uh, manager. Should you override? What are the conditions for an override? If you do override, when would you sort of reverse your override? If you have a model and now you're going to change a model and or add a new model, should you track how it performed relative to the past? And if you track it to the past, this is that what do you do with that information now that you have it? <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, these are actually quite difficult uh, questions. I actually think we should... Uh put them down as some of the topics we should uh, discuss when we all get together because I I mean even within our group where we are kind of diehard trend followers we we do have uh, differences uh, in terms of uh, being 100% systematic or 99.9% systematic uh, as people will know from listening to our conversations so I think this is interesting and what also makes it really relevant and interesting is of course that in 2020, we know for a fact, uh, or at least listening to some of the allocators uh, to this space, at least they have come out and said there were several of their trend-following managers who made discretionary uh, decisions in terms of their model, whether it was the risk level or, or whatever it was. But there were overrides, uh, right. quote unquote. Yeah, and and so then when you even so, it's even more difficult than the fact of just saying is it well don't override or override that it's a it's a yes no question because there are people who uh overrode and actually that probably added value there are people sure. who overrode and it didn't add value then and the issue comes in is is that okay is a macro event worthy of an override which i'd sort of say like well if you really believe that trend following is an attempt to sort of deal with uncertainty, it would seem as that you shouldn't override for a macro event. On the other hand, if let's say we talked a little bit about treasury liquidity, or if you sort of said that there's a massive change in liquidity on the top of the book, or let's say that the Fed is, is or uh, central banks are involved in financial repression, so now I have a model and I'm going to change the weighting or I'm going to reduce exposure to a market or stop trading a certain market because of liquidity considerations or because of repression considerations. That's a different question. So, so the issue of, say, I always follow my model is actually much more nuanced because you have to ask the question is, is that, well, are there different conditions that you should sort of address here and think about. And this applies even so. So the question that applies for very large money managers is actually the same question that even for a lot of listeners who might be trading their own portfolio, you have to ask the question, this is that, what are the conditions where you say, I'm going to turn it off? And the questions may not always be, I'm losing money. This isn't working. Uh, you have to ask the question is, is that are there events or situations that would suggest a, a switch? 
And then the question comes in is, is it is turning off the same as saying that, okay, euro dollars is all close to zero in the front month. I used to trade euro dollars because of Fed activity. I'm going to stop trading that. Is that an override to your system or is that just a portfolio rebalancing? The person we were talking to sort of said, well, I overrid the system. You could sort of say like, well, we made a portfolio rebalancing away from uh, from global equity futures and we rebalanced it to zero. So, so, so is there a difference between those two decisions? Yeah, no, no, uh, absolutely. Um, it, these are important. And I actually think that they are extremely relevant to those uh, in our audience who are who are doing this themselves because I think this this is one thing that you can't backtest and that is experience. And I think that's one of the benefits you get with, and I've said this before, I, I think there are merits to trying to do it yourself for sure, but I also think there's a lot of merit to saying, actually, I am going to give the money to someone who has done this for 30, 40, 50 years and let them deal with this because it, there is a little bit more to it and um, doesn't mean you can't educate yourself about the process and all of that and be very close to it but 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 it's often these decisions at extreme points in time that um, can make such a big difference and you could get into the very micro level this is that i have a signal to go long or short but the market seems very illiquid at the time of the signal should i just hold back the order for a couple hours or days so so there's a micro and macro and i guess an interesting paradox is is that if you never change your model or you never override okay well then you can uh, then it's very hard to test whether that was a good decision or a bad decision because you have nothing to compare it to on the other hand, if you do override, you could always then go back to the model and say, if I didn't override, what would I have made? And I could say, here's what, I, what my performance with the override, here's the performance of not overriding. So you can measure your success or failure if you do override. If you never override, you can never determine whether that was actually a good choice or not a good choice because you have nothing to compare it to. <laughs> No, uh, true. But of course, as soon as you start going down that path, I think the likelihood of you making too many of these uh, decisions is very um, right. increases dramatically in probability. And, and we can sort of say the final, yeah, a final thing is this: is that well, uh, how many overrides does it take to become a discretionary manager? <laughs> so, so if I, some would say just one. <laughs> so, well. That's an interesting question. Is is that if yeah. if you have a, a let's say you're a manager for for you know twenty years, and let's say that you've taken let's say one override every five years, are you a systematic mm -hmm. manager or you're a discretionary manager? And similarly, is that if I say like, well, I give my traders discretion on how to execute, I do this kind of things, and you know, I use my expertise to adjust the uh, the weightings in my a model across markets. Is he a systematic manager or is he a discretionary manager? And what's the space in between? And, yeah. and this really gets into the tough issue because uh, we'll sort of say that investors oftentimes will say. I want to uh, hire a systematic manager, but one of the critical questions they often get to is that they'd say, I want a systematic manager, 
But I feel a lot better if, let's say, he says that he might override at certain times, that he still, still says that I might turn it off under some situation. And he goes like, well, I want systematic, but I don't want all systematic. I want to have some, I want, I want to have him some discretion that he could make some choices. So, so investors are oftentimes, they, 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 they want to straddle it. They say like, I want a systematic manager, but, you know, but I want to give you discretion to make overrides if that's going to be a good decision. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the whole point. Make, speaking of decisions, I know we've sort of gone through your topics right. and and there'll be more to discuss uh, in in a few weeks when we all get together, I think, on, on some of these points. But I do this uh, little study um, uh, by where I look at sort of, we're talking about making decisions, right? And one of the things when, when we obviously hope that people will include trend following in their portfolio. So the question we often get is, okay, so how much should I put in trend following and how much to equities and how much to, to bonds? And I just want to illustrate how how interesting that question really is, uh, especially when you think of the stocks and the bond portfolio. So, so what I do is I, um, I start uh, at two extreme points. So I go back about 20 years and I start just before the, um, the, uh, tech bubble. If you are having to select the optimal portfolio and, and this is just based simply on sharp ratio. So nothing too clever here. What would your allocation have to be? just before the crisis uh, of, of, of the tech bubble. And there you see that um, in, and this is around uh, September 2000, you should have put 66% of your money in the world government bond index, 23% in the uh, world uh, equity index. And then, of course, I use our own Dunn's program as, as the benchmark for, for trend following, and, and that gets a t an 11% allocation. But then, only two years later, uh, uh, you you get you know you get the low of the of the crisis, and then again I look at what would the optimal portfolio have been if you uh, had started at that point in time, and what you see there is that your bond uh, portion, not surprisingly, goes down to around forty nine percent. Your equity portion, not surprisingly, goes up to forty one percent. But your allocation to trend following actually stays more or less the same. It it sits at ten percent, so kind of a nice balance uh, or a nice consistency in the trend following part, but hugely difference between how much you should have had in equities and how much you should have had in bonds at these two extremes. And then I followed up by saying, okay, well let's look at the other big crisis we've had in the last twenty years, which is from November '07, uh, where you could have uh, put your started you know investing just before the crisis. Or it could have been in March 2009, just at the low of the crisis. And there you get some even more extremes. So in November 07, if you had to allocate to the optimal portfolio based on Sharp to these three assets classes or assets, you should have put 28% in government bonds and you should have put around 44% in um, uh, the uh, equities, World Equity Index, and around 28% in, in uh, Dunn's trend following program. And then at the low of the crisis, the bond part actually completely goes away almost. We're down to 7% just that you should have had in bonds since 2009. You should have had 74% in equities and 19% uh, in our strategy. And, and so again, yeah, there's definitely more consistency between uh, the two uh, allocations to trend following than there is between bonds and, and stocks. 
but it just shows you how difficult it is to to make these decisions and going back to your point about precision and all of that so when people think about allocating to trend following we're not thinking that you're going to get it right or you're going to get it you know very precise but it gives you some indication at least in terms of um what 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 the allocation should be in an overall portfolio between these three assets which you know most people have at least two of them now mark as people will know by now, we are speaking on a Friday and therefore performance looks pretty good for trend followers so far this month. I'm not sure it's going to be the same when we look at this uh, one day later. But anyways, as of uh, Thursday evening, the uh, Beta 50 was still up 80 basis points for the month, up 12 and a half for the year. Sokjian Trend in the CTA Index, sorry, up 72 basis points uh, for the month, up 10.67% for the year. And the Sokjian Trend Index up one and a quarter up 15.36 for the year so far. The short-term index is down, uh, sorry, it's up seven basis points for the month, uh, up 2.36% for the year. But as I said, the, the numbers will be very different, um, even for the World Equity Index, uh, which was slightly up as of yesterday for the month. But that's also going to be uh, down for the month once we finish with this day for sure. We're going to wrap up the conversation. Uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, if you wouldn't mind, um, send this link, toptradersonplug.com forward slash share. Send that to uh, three of your friends. and uh, Let's see if we can't uh, continue to grow the audience. That would be fantastic. Next week, I'm joined by Rich. He is back. Um, so that's going to be also, as usual, fun, educational. I am excited to hear what his topics for the week will be. If you have any questions, of course, you can always send them to us, info at toptradersonplug.com, and we do our best to get them debated, discussed, uh, as soon as we get them. From Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.